It's Monday, May 28th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 162 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is songwriter, composer, multi-multi-multi-instrumentalist, Robbie Lee. Do you know Robbie Lee? You may be more familiar with him than, uh, than you know. I'll explain in a minute. Look, today's the day, man. Monday, the 28th. Tonight, it's happening in Brooklyn, the very first in the live 5049 series. Tonight, me, Toby Driver, getting into it at uh, Arate in Brooklyn. Arate is located in Greenpoint, 67 West Street. Uh, It's pretty easy to get to. Come out. This is the very first one. The next one is happening June 20th with a new band uh, by Peter Evans. And I'm really excited about this series. I, I, I want it to, to go well, and, and I want to be able to do it for, for a long time. So let's make the first one special. Come out tonight. Toby's going to be doing some new music. He's going to be joined by some amazing string players, and, um, and that's that. Another bit of business to discuss before we get into it with Robbie. Uh, the Kickstarter that I put up, it's got four days left, and let's finish it out. Uh, my new record, Decay of the Angel. I'm really excited about it, and at the end of this episode, I'm going to play a track from it. Um, It's one of the crazier tracks on the record. It's called With 10,000 Shields and Spears. Uh, Extra credit for anyone who can find the meaning of that name. Uh, It's actually a live track. It's going to sound very overdubbed, and there's a little bit of overdubbing with synths and stuff, but the clarinet and the choppy stuff you hear was recorded live. Uh, no overdubs. The record's an hour long, comes out in July, and like I said, a couple days left on the Kickstarter, and by contributing to it and picking up a copy, uh, you're helping me tremendously. It's the first record I've put out in two years, the first solo record I've done um, since 2012. The last solo record I did was the, uh, the kickoff of the 5049 label in 2012. Uh, and, and this is the seventh, seventh or eighth record on the label. Uh, this is the 162nd episode of the podcast. Um, I think the label's cool. I'm into it. Do that. Go to the 5049 website and you can find the link right to the Kickstarter right there, ready to go. All right, that's enough. I've already taken up three minutes. Today on the show, Robbie Lee. What do you guys know about Robbie. Uh, here's what I can tell you about Robbie. I've known him um, for a number of years. Uh, most of that time, I would say we've known each other sort of peripherally. Um, we have a lot of mutual friends and collaborators. Uh, Mary Halverson, Matthew Welch, Brian Chase, uh, a really long list of people who, um, you know, we've, I, what I'm trying to say is I've we've been in orbit of one another for a long time. Um, and, I think we didn't really get into it and start talking uh, at any length until a couple of years ago uh, when Brian Chase, who many of you will remember as a guest on this show, as well as someone who I've done a lot of work with in the past several years. Um, some of you may know him as the drummer in a band called the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, 
when Brian got married um, two years ago, Robbie and I were the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the witnesses. We signed his ketubah, uh, just the Jewish wedding contract. Um, so I feel a closeness to Robbie. Uh, that was a very special and tender moment for someone that I that I care a lot about, Brian. And the fact that we did that together, you know, it it, it, it signifies something to me. Uh, I feel a closeness to Robbie in his approach. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're coming from, you know, kind of different places, but I think we have a lot in common in terms of um, a broad range of interests, uh, record production, record collection, uh, uh, affinity for instruments. Um, and I'm going to speak more specifically about that um, uh, in regard to Robbie. Multi-instrumentalist is the only way to describe Robbie because he plays literally dozens of instruments and most of them are probably instruments you've never heard of he plays the sax he plays the flute he plays the clarinet and the guitar and and keys but he plays a lot of baroque instruments if you guys have heard the band um seven tears with my good buddy charlie looker any instrument that you can identify on that record is probably robbie playing something whether it's a lute or or a flute and he plays these instruments really really well He's been on a lot of people's records. Um, his own recorded output under his name has been uh, pretty limited. Um, and before I talk about that, Robbie started a record label many years ago called Eye and Ear. This was in the early 2000s um, when a record label that, you know, not like what I'm doing where I just put out my own stuff, but an actual label where you <laughs> – put out records uh by musicians saying that you're sorry for laughing it's just it's kind of a crazy concept to to have to explain what <laughs> what a, a an actual record label is but he was putting out records by uh people like mary alverson and uh my buddy matt bowder uh, a lot of different people and the label went away but that was an important step for a lot of musicians he's since started another record label called telegraph harp and they've been kind of hitting it out of the park. They put out that Kelly Moran record called uh, Blood Root. Kelly was on the show a couple of months ago. Put out a Patrick Higgins record uh, called Bacchanalia, which is insane and amazing. Patrick was on the show also a few months ago. But the point is, uh, when, when you spend so much time championing other people's music and helping them release their stuff, I th I, I think it you know can be difficult to really focus on your own stuff. And... In the very near future, Robbie is putting out a bunch of records that, uh, that are his and about him. He's got a duo record with Mary Halverson coming out this fall on New Amsterdam, and it's a fucking crazy record. How is it fucking crazy? It's fucking crazy in that they showed up at the studio, Robbie brought tons of his crazy instruments, Mary didn't know what he was bringing, uh, they're all stringed instruments, you know, that... You know, if you play guitar, you could figure something out with. And they made a whole record uh, with these different instruments. It's amazing. It's coming out this fall. He's got a trio record coming out with uh, James Ilgenfritz and Norbert Rodenkirchen. Hope I'm saying that right. That's coming out in just a couple of weeks, June 22nd. Again, insane. Lots of flutes, reverberant spaces. Um, it's pretty spectacular. All of the stuff that Robbie does, you know, it's it's kind of this weird confluence of free improvisation, uh, early music, 
singer songwriter record producer uh and it's exciting and i dig it for this conversation uh we kind of go all over the place a little bit um which to be honest is the kind of conversation i prefer for these shows i I don't i don't know what it's like for you guys but uh i prefer conversations that that don't follow a particular format or trajectory um and we did a good one today i think you're gonna enjoy it if you want to find out more about robbie lee Go to RobbieLee.com. If you want to find out more about his record label called Telegraph Harp, go to TelegraphHarp.com. And that's it. Uh, we're going to get into it with Robbie Lee. Do me a favor. Go to the 5049 Records website and uh, check out the Kickstarter. And after the conversation, at the end of the show, stay tuned. I'm going to play a track from the new record, Decay of the Angel, my first solo record in many years. And uh, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Robbie Lee. Which just sounds amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. Other thing that I got in the mail today is this fucking crazy thing. Have you seen this? Oh, I've heard that. Oh, I saw you posted a video. Okay, I need to invest with <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, is it? Can you? Can it make pitches? It, it 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 so the thing with this synth is it's designed by this like Russian guy uh-huh. who's a philosopher. He's actually Ukrainian, I think, and like he has these concepts about like he wants an instrument that cannot be played linearly. Mm-hmm. Like you, it's so it's all it's really hard to do the same thing twice on this instrument. Right, that's great. I just got it today, mm-hmm. but like it literally has like everything I think I need. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's amazing. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Electronic music, like, uh, I'm so interested in, I always get these big ideas that I want to do this crazy complicated setups. And then I hear so much, you know, you you go down these rabbit holes of watching, you know, synth module demos on YouTube. Uh And, I mean, nobody makes any interesting music with them. (laughs) They don't. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's just endlessly fascinating. But then the actual music is just like... I don't know. Everything is so tied into the grid, and then not. And there are interesting ways to to right. work from being on the grid right. and being in sync. But you know that takes an uh, intelligence. I mean, that takes yeah, you know, yeah. that takes an, not intelligence, an intent, right? It that takes, takes an like, intent, and you have something you're trying to do. I don't understand. Like, um, like I I know a lot of people who work uh, in Ableton Live. Mm-hmm. I've never, to my knowledge, never heard anything cool come out of Ableton Live. Uh-huh. It always sounds really like rhythm based and yep. very predictable and tight. And yep. I don't know. Have you fucked around with Ableton Live? Uh, I've just started trying to learn it uh, with the notion <laughs> of trying to because it works so differently than like making music on, on Pro Tools or on tape. Right. You know, it's just a whole different concept. Right. And so my notion, I've actually just taken a couple of lessons from a guy really and i walked into these lessons and said hey pretend i'm a musician but uh i'm not going to tell you about me and what i do just teach me how you do what you do Uh i want to see how people make 
kind of shitty modern music. Right. <laughs> um, and, and and be able to take those tools and, you know, run with them in my own direction, you know, but I want to learn from the inside out how that's done, you know. And how did it go? Uh, it still confuses me, but really? <laughs> I'm working on it. I, it's... <laughs> Well, because you, I mean, you understand, like you've, you have a lot of recording gear, and right. you've produced a lot of music mm-hmm. from the ground up. So mm-hmm. you understand the fundamentals and concepts behind basic audio production and even advanced audio production. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, man. I what am I saying? I'm saying that like Ableton feels very limited to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the really interesting projects that I've gotten into in the past couple of years has been this um collaboration with glasser uh-huh. which is this woman cameron cameron mesro and she makes fantastically interesting music uh using ableton really so it, it it's can, possible yeah it can, I know, it, I can, know. it can be done you just have to have your own voice you know i said like intent like i think you have to have an idea about what you who you are and what you want to yeah. do rather than you know i'm just going to turn this on i mean you ha- and you have to experiment obviously sure but but you know I think there's a lot of untapped potential there, but it's untapped. Yeah. I mean, so this synth that I bought, what I like about it is you just hit buttons and it makes these fucking crazy sounds. (laughs) But so I'm like, I'm bugging out with it all day. And then I put a picture of it on Instagram and Mm -hmm. Zena Parkins commented, oh, that's the new It synth. Uh Oh, you're like, I'm probably going to have to sell it. (laughs) (laughs) Because if, if if I do this on a record... I don't want people to immediately go, oh, that's what that is. Like, I don't think that's going to happen with that thing. That could be anything. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, you know what I'm saying, though? Like, when I hear, like, I was just talking about this with someone the other day. Like, pedals are supposed to make things a little more uh, interesting and mysterious. Mm-hmm. And a good majority of the time when I'm listening to something, I go, oh, that guy's using a Strymon timeline. Or mm-hmm. that guy's using, like, a Green Line 6. Or that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I hate that. It, yeah. it demystifies it. Yeah, 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 totally. I can't stand, I'll tell you what I can't stand in that world, uh-huh. is uh, all of the current breed of things that are octave effects, because they all sound so... Dumb. So just digital. Yeah. Like, not just soulless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody seems to be, you know... Um, just so into them right now. <laughs> Everybody's like, like, uh, what's I can't think of the word. You know, like, like they're in this trance. They're in this octave trance. Yeah, and they can't break away. It's a <laughs> <laughs> well. So you have a lot of instruments. Uh, more than any person should. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, hopefully, I use them all. Do you- <laughs> I use many. I use most things. When it comes to, I, I'm always getting rid of shit because. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to in fact I, I might send you away with some stuff <laughs> i um i i the one you know whether it's woodwinds for a while i was like collecting like weird percussion instruments i still have a few pedals are ultimately the thing that i can't say no to that mm-hmm. i just keep have like a revolving door going mm-hmm. is there a particular what that they're going in and out i'm just always buying or pedals. always in just in uh, they go out. out if i, if I don't <laughs> use something for like six yeah. months i get rid of it yeah that's good i can't i don't have that gene I don't, I, don't, I don't have to get rid of it, Gene. <laughs> Where do you keep all this shit? Uh, I have a storage space. Yeah. My storage space, had, like, I have, there's a harpsichord in my storage space. There's a <laughs> Wurlitzer keyboard. There's a Farfisa organ. You know, but it's there, and I do get calls for things. Like, aside from the creative music I make, yeah. Um, yeah, I get fun calls where people say, can you come record on some pop record? And we need a sound, but we don't know what it is. And really? I'll show up, you know, and I, I have my car in the city and I drive around. I'll load up my car with all kinds of stuff. And I've done this. I did it one time even. I drove up to Texas with a car full of 
like Renaissance woodwinds. <laughs> And put them on a rock record. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you listen to, I mean, like for, you know, so we, we both like record production and, you know, certainly like Pet Sounds is sort of like the, mm-hmm. you know, the whole, it's like the the Rosetta Stone of mm-hmm. creative record making. But it, I mean, all the fucking instruments on that record, you know, and they literally come in for like a second or something. You mm-hmm. hear like a harpsichord or something. Do you sort of incorporate them in that way? Like even just section by section? Yeah. I mean, I really, I like the idea of... I mean, in something that has an arrangement like that, I like on song based music is not talking about right improv that's another right. in, in, interesting question about how it how it all factors in but um I like the element of surprise I like you know I like s- sections to have their own voice, you know, and then to, for a for a whole piece to have a structure and yeah. have an inexperience a narrative experience yeah yeah yeah, so I, you can do that even with a single note you know right you can do that with with a low note on a piano that hits at one spot on the song and there's no other piano in the whole song it's like pop music and rock music in that that world of of music production it gets a pass that improvised music and jazz music and you know uh compositional you know Mm -hmm. contemporary music doesn't get Mm -hmm. like you can't do like the general rule of thumb is you know you can work with what you have you can't create this fantasy world where there's a piano player on stage for one for one note of one song (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i think i think uh we're gonna have to try it (laughs) (laughs) well i do that with my records like Mm -hmm. with the records i make i really don't care if if they're an accurate representation of what happened (laughs) right well that's an interesting question i mean there's definitely this idea in the culture of jazz and in the culture of maybe classical music has even changed more jazz away from this but, but but about a recording is supposed to be you know, just purely capturing a moment or a recording is, you know, is authentic, right? And what is authenticity? Uh-huh. And I, I don't know. I really enjoy now when I hear jazz records from the 80s that have really? a sound that we would probably be really annoyed by, uh-huh. but where you really hear the studio sound of it. You really hear that, you know. Like a Wynton like, record or something? Or Yeah, I don't know. what what I just heard something and I can't remember. I can't place it right now. Okay. But it was just some you know, some eighties jazz record and you could really hear, you know, the the close mic drums, yeah. you know, and everything that's that you're not supposed to do today. And right. nobody does anymore. You know, now every I mean record production in in jazz and in all kinds of, you know, indie americana whatever everything other than like top 40 pop it's all about authenticity which Mm -hmm. means sounds are earthy and warm and you know people are learning to add secret levels of distortion into their clean pro tools thing to make it earthy and warm Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know round it off and people rediscovered ribbon mics that you know make everything sound earthy and warm Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but i really there's something interesting about the artificial quality of some of those studio records where the band was totally not there's nothing artificial about the music being it's not like that piano note coming in at that one uh-huh. spot you know but just the actual tactile kind of sound quality of it right know? i mean there's so much <sighs> there's so much <laughs> trendiness and there always has been there always will be in record production mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. you know like right now i can there's you, like you said there's this this octave thing that's happening a lot yep. people um I, oh do you know randall dunn uh, producer 
great guy, uh, really interesting producer, amazing recording engineer. He, you know, he was, <laughs> he was telling me, he's like, I see it coming. The next trend is bone, ri- bone dry records. Mm-hmm. Right now, people are splashing reverb, mm-hmm. you know, with just complete disregard mm-hmm. for natural sound, you know, and his theory is largely because so much of record production is taking place at home now. Mm-hmm. So that's people's kind of workaround to make it sound, you know, not so... So homespun, mm-hmm. but that the next level is going to be watched in a year. He's, he's like, I already see it happening in Europe. Like everything's bone fucking dry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But all you know, every re- every decade has these these things. In oh it. yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the fact that you could put on a piece of music and pretty much know when it's from just from the, from the way it sounds, from the sound. Yeah, which which is not always right. not always a deliberate thing about you know sometimes it's just. The sound that those studios got, or 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 recording equipment sure. in, in remote spaces, you know, just like the tact, I guess the tactile quality of the medium. Yeah, yeah. E- even like you can tell the difference between a late '30s record and a late '40s record, and not that much had. Well, I guess actually by the late '40s, you had yeah, recording tape, which didn't exist before then, but right. you know, or '40s to '50s, you know, there, there's still something I can't ex- explain it, but I know it when I hear it. Exactly. No, there it's. It, it but it makes it for me like I, I love this aspect of it what you're saying and I I enjoy being able to do exactly what you just described. At the same time, it, it kind of points out like how stupid people are to me. Mm-hmm. Like, in that, <laughs> like, like why are you making your record sound like like nowadays in mm-hmm. 2018? Mm-hmm. You can literally choose to have your record sound like anything, mm-hmm. like it was produced you know a thousand years ago in a cave right. Right. or you know and. It bother it, it. It doesn't. I don't know, it doesn't actively bother me, but I do wonder why people don't take more liberty mm-hmm. in creating a vibe around their records. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm saying this about you know jazz records. Why should they be authentic? Why, I, why, why yeah. should that be the only sound that's acceptable? You know, in in a in a marketplace, is something that is totally authentic. Yeah, or whatever people think of. They're is. kind of the most hardline. They're mm-hmm. actually kind of like more hardline than classical mm-hmm. people about what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know. Classical's pretty tough, too. Classical's pretty tough, but I, I think like there are classical records coming out where it's like close mic'd, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's a more aggressive sounding record than you know the typical you know the the, the proper way to classically record, which is like two, a pair of Sheps mm-hmm. in like a performance hall yep. with no compression. Yep, yep, totally. which drives me fucking bananas. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, when you, re- you no definition, you can't. Everything is just a big mush. Yeah, right? well, you just like hear. I can't. It doesn't do the music free. Sometimes it does, but it often doesn't really do the music uh, a lot of service. You know, like I, I've always felt like with records, and I do this with all my records, is that moment by moment you need to respond to what's happening musically, mm-hmm. and you can accentuate things as mm-hmm. as a mix engineer, and you know by panning something hard left mm-hmm. or banging the reverb up real quick. Yep. So I've never understood why you wouldn't want to do that with the recorded document of. Okay, let's really let's dissect this music and, and go section by section, yep. and you know, amplify it that yep. way. Totally, I do. I mean, and it's on a case by case basis, I guess. But a lot of the time, I do a ton of manipulation, but the end goal being that you don't hear the manipulation. Yeah, you know. But I like improv records. Yeah, yeah, free, yeah. free free stuff. I automate all over the place. You know, <laughs> and edits. Yeah, you know. And I love one of my favorite things is to have a record that's totally improvised. And then gets really highly edited, and through the course of editing, it turns into a composition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that what the trio with uh, Brian Chase and James Ilgenfritz has turned into? Um, that one is actually we've 
we did a recording session and have kind of gone through and picked out the pieces that we like, but yeah. it, the mixes haven't been sort of finished yet, and they're, they're on my case. So if you guys are listening to this, uh, <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's taking forever. Uh, it, there's just a lot of music, so it's a kind of daunting challenge to um, conceive of the whole thing at once. You know, I, I can't really work on it little piece by little piece. So like, I have to find a couple of days just to. Can you do that? Like, I can only work on something. Like, I have like three or four records being worked on right now. Uh-huh. They're all taking way too long, but I'll work on one for an hour and then I'm working on it again for like yeah. a week or two. Yeah, well, yeah, you lose perspective if you do too much. I mean, this one just needs a long session to, to yeah. really get it going off the ground. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then I can be, you know. When was the first time slower. you were in a recording studio in um, your life? In high school, my high school jazz band. Uh-huh. Um, I, you were playing alto? Uh, yeah, alto with that, because I started playing, I played alto saxophone for a long time, and then some point later in high school, I had a total break. And switch to no. You're saying switch to guitar. No, <laughs> no, switch to tenor and soprano. Oh, yeah. Because you, well, you know <laughs> that, that was my total break. Because <laughs> what you heard Coltrane? Probably. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. And then had to stop playing saxophone forever because I didn't want to just sound like the people that I loved. It's kind of crazy that to this day no one is out Coltrane. Coltrane. It's not possible. It's fucking crazy though <laughs> that like he died in 1967 mm-hmm. and he's still just like the bottom line. Mm-hmm. That was. The probably the specific thing, you know, because that was the first time it, he was my hero in high school, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and but understanding music as a narrative, like a life in music as a narrative, you know, uh-huh. seeing how his records, each one built on the one before it and each one was telling a story of a whole life. Just like, can you imagine, I mean, there's very few people, and I think a lot about career arc, you know, all mm-hmm. the different ways that you can have a career, because I... You know, it's totally essential to me to be playing creative music my whole life, you know, and not just, you see a lot of these people that do a great thing when they're young and they spend their whole life, you know, kind of holding on to that and it just tapers off and, you know, they don't continue to make any real interesting music. And then there's a couple of interesting cases, people like Miles Davis, right? Uh Miles keeps changing. And I mean, his later music—I can't say I quite understand—but sure, it's, sure. it's still interesting. It's still—it's still the product of a creative mind working and trying to do something yeah. deliberate, and know? literally reinventing music like every fifteen years or so. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, it's yep. insane. Yep. It's insane. Yep. And so I guess this is what I'm saying: is that there's a million different ways to have an interesting career, right? You know, and to have an interesting career with an arc. And I know there's a couple of kinds that I really got to make sure i don't have you know where people really do an interesting thing and then it's just you know can't i mean in jazz it's a lot easier to hold on to that and uh-huh. if you look at like rock and roll histories which i do you know there's there's a, a there's only a few cases i think where people really make super interesting uh boundary pushing music all their, their the whole end. lives yeah. and don't you know because that's what drives them for it yeah you know? and there's there's a couple of people like that david bowie and bob yeah. dylan and yep yep, yep totally and by the way i love the controversial statement i love late bob dylan and i really the stuff is happening now yeah it's, it's off the charts it's amazing it's and, so good and i can't listen to 60s dylan i almost i i <laughs> you know i went through a, a several year period where i was like a borderline obsessive bob dylan fan mm-hmm. and and now if and when i listen to dylan which is not that often i only listen to the new stuff yeah it's so good dude th- th- it's not new anymore but modern times that record from mm-hmm. 2006 is yeah. like 
such a fucking masterpiece from yep. top to bottom. Yep. Yeah, starting with Time Out of Mind yeah. onward. It just, it's this whole cycle of stuff. And he is so smart, and he knows what he's doing. This, here's my theme today, you know, it's intent, right? Yeah. It's like, I like any kind of music where somebody um, is making a deliberate choice, and that doesn't mean that the music itself has to be rigid. It can be totally free. Uh-huh. You know? But there's some... There, he, Bob Dylan doesn't make mistakes you know no, he never has he, he he tries out a lot of things and you may love or you may hate what he does you know but that's also like just i don't understand why people aren't okay with that mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying yep. like I, if you bob dylan has been on this earth creating work mm-hmm. for over f- like 50 years now mm-hmm. it's crazy to think about and he has really stuck his neck out and, and continued to, to try new things. And I just don't understand why, why people aren't okay with that. Like mm-hmm. it, you literally have, in my mind, if you love, uh, you know, Nashville skyline, then you also must love empire burlesque. Mm-hmm. It's cause it's all one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all one thing. Yeah. It's not okay to pick and choose. In my yep, opinion. Yep, totally. And I'm really interested by records that get a, have, have a bad reputation. People think, Oh, so-and-so some brilliant artist, they really had this misstep, you know, yeah. people like, um, I don't know them all that well, but like some of the weird Neil Young records, you know, yeah. people are like, Oh, I really wish he hadn't made that eighties record, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I have to think, you know, you, you, you know what recording situations are like, you know, how, how hermetically sealed you are mm-hmm. when you're working on something and you're really passionate about it you know and i'm sure you know with some of these people every you know they were so into what they were doing and they really thought what they were doing was great and then some critic is going to come along down the line and say oh well what a misstep on the part of neil young you know Mm -hmm. no i'm interested in not not the um the way that people have interpreted this stuff after the fact i'm interested in what was driving him to think that this thing was great even if i don't care for it that much sure you know i believe that you know like with with the case of like neil young specifically and i'm actually i don't i know that those records exist that people dislike mm-hmm. i haven't really spent time with them mm-hmm. uh, i'm kind of like a casual neil young fan <laughs> but i do know that to get from you know like heart of gold to the dead man soundtrack like he had to do that other stuff mm-hmm. you don't just you know, go from one thing to the next thing right. that's completely, you know, right. out to lunch like that without, you know, taking the long route. Right, right. No, the whole the whole life is a piece of art, you know. Oh, man, he's one of the ones. Totally. He's one of the guys. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, anyway, there's a whole bunch of people like that, but not that many in, in popular music. In popular music. You know, there's yeah. a lot more in jazz. There's a lot more in jazz. There's, you know, I, I feel like the most stalled creative creativity takes place actually in like the contemporary music world. Mm-hmm. That's where people get locked in. I think the most severely to like not developing so much. Uh huh. You and, know. Yeah, but at the same time, people will take uh, take an older composer seriously in a way that they don't right. necessarily take an older songwriter seriously. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You know? um, or or not not take them seriously, but at least you know expect that they are capable of doing their best work. Right. Like my neighbor yeah. over here, Steve Reich. <laughs> oh, right. right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, he, but, you know, there's a whole genre that's like late works, right? If you right. look at classical historians. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. look at like the late works. The late of, works. Of Bach or Mozart. Beethoven. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Beethoven especially, right? And, there, and there's this idea that, <laughs> that late in life, these composers get get into the meat of it. They get into their real serious... Sure. Um, in their third act. In the third act, yeah. But we don't think that way at all about most other kinds of music. Why is that? I mean, 
I, I think there's one case so specifically, which is David Bowie, mm-hmm. who so brilliantly made his final statement mm-hmm. in a way that I don't know that anyone's ever done that. No. Has anyone ever done that? Um, I can think of a few albums where people knew they were dying when they made the record. Right. The last Warren Zevon record was right. like that. Um, and the uh, Lee Hazelwood uh-huh. um, had, I forget, they had a funny album title too that referenced the fact that he was on his way out. He knew, you know, but not the way, I mean, David Bowie it had this whole theatrical plan, you know, the yeah. record came out, you know, with the whole way that it worked. Yeah. That was out it there, was man. Pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. When did you start playing guitar? Because so, you were playing sax as a kid. Yeah. And you thought I'll be a jazz musician? I was, I did music. Massachusetts? Yeah. Newton? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Boston suburbs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Brookline, right. Lincoln, Cambridge. Did you know Mary as a kid? Uh, not as a kid. We met, I mean, she was really uh, close by. Yeah. Uh, Mary Halverson. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. For your listeners. Mary Halverson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but we met um, in when we were both in college. My at Westland. Uh, well, my best friend. I wonder if you knew him, uh, Dan St. Clair. Remember Dan? Yeah. He was he was around here. Probably I don't know when you came to New York. But keyboard our, player. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Player, I remember yeah. Dan. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of he really moved into sort of sound art, uh, sound art worlds. Uh-huh. He lives in Australia now. But oh wow, he um, he went to the new school. He went someplace else, and then he went to the new school, uh, to the jazz program, uh-huh. and Mary uh, was taking a semester or a year off from Wesleyan and ended up in the same program. So they got to be friends there. I was in school in uh, in Boston. and At Berkeley? Or? Uh, at Harvard, actually. You went to Harvard? Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> right on. <laughs> what, what did you study at Harvard? Uh, philosophy. Really? But I mostly used, you know, took the um, every excuse to make it about music. Yeah. Everything I did, yeah. Did you graduate from Harvard? I did, yeah. Hey. yeah. Not a great philosophy student. <laughs> I got to do a lot of interesting music. Yeah. I decided real deliberately not to go to music school. I thought I want to keep playing music my way. And yeah. Not not learn too much uh, and be forced into some mold. And You had an idea yeah. of applying principles of philosophy to music? No, I just found any place in, you know, because I want, I've been obsessed with music for so long, you know, then and earlier and so i just made everything i could about music yeah did you philosophy is really like a one of the only degrees the undergrad degrees that might be like less likely to make a living with in music <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. like what do you do with like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. like a, a bachelor's in philosophy <laughs> I that wasn't the that wasn't the reason for choosing. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, no, the, that's right. The only thing you can do is become a philosopher, right? You know, which is a self-propagating system that exists only inside of academia. You know, it it creates itself, right? And 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 creates a cycle of its own propagation, which in many worlds in music seems to also be kind of a, yeah a way does. things work. You know? Yeah, you know, but you can speak that language and understand. I know what's going on if if I read it. I'm not yeah. actively engaged in, in the in the world of that anymore. But you know, it was. I mean, actually, studying philosophy in school was kind of like for me. I was a piano player first from really right. young, and I played piano when I was five. And you know, I'm not a great technical keyboardist, but it's still the the thing deepest down in my in the blood of my musical DNA. Mm-hmm. And that it's just a framework. 
for understanding things, you know? The, so, the, the keyboard. The keyboard, yeah, yeah. yeah, as a way of conceptualizing music, you know? So that's why I go, I play all these different instruments now, and, you know, they're all... I'm not really a whatever player. I mean, I spend a lot of time now playing guitar. I spend a lot of time playing the flute. Uh-huh. To, so to some people, I'm a guitarist. Some people, I'm a, I'm a flutist, uh-huh. maybe, maybe a saxophonist, depending on where you know me from. But I really, they're tools, and I'm a musician. Yeah. And, you know, so philosophy was kind of like that. Or, or going to Harvard. There's two types of people. Who go to Harvard? Who, who go there. The people who want to tell you and the people that don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is a well-known fact. Yeah. Really? Yeah, people usually say, oh, I... Where'd you go to school? Oh, uh, outside of Boston. Really? Oh, where? Oh, uh, in Cambridge. You know, go through every uh, <laughs> every, every possible. Oh, did you go to MIT? No, no, I didn't go. Yeah, every, every possible thing to uh, not to have, have to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, one of the best things about uh, being in Harvard Square was Twisted Village, the record store. The record store. It's a famous yeah. record store. It's a famous record store. Yeah. And when I got to Harvard as a freshman, there was like uh, a guide. You know, a freshman guide about. Here's the places you go. Here's where you buy <laughs> clothes or whatever. You're because you're a kid on your own for the first time and you don't mm-hmm. know how to do anything. And there was a section on uh, music stores on, and it said Twisted Village, and I forget what the description was, but it was something like they're they're so cool here. They it was some joke about them being you know way too hip. Mm-hmm. So I immediately, of course, it was like, that's the one. You know, a beeline for there. Yeah, and I went down, and it was amazing. I mean, just legendary store filled with you know was it well organized um yeah it was well organized yeah and just it had a real ethos you know and the the people that ran it um wayne and kate wayne uh uh, rogers has a band musicians yeah musicians yeah and love music and are passionate yeah and that that was the that was the story right in the book it said something like if you go into twisted village and ask a question about What's the best Sonic Youth record? You know, you'll get out eight hours later after the lecture. <laughs> so I just went down there and started asking questions. You know, well, but, but you but, were already listening to adventurous music. If you Coltrane was your guy, yeah, I loved Coltrane. Yeah, you know? and I loved Eiler and I loved all that. Kind yeah, of so stuff. you were already totally. But I in. didn't. I, I didn't know anything about genres tangential to jazz or outside of jazz. And oh, really? You know, or like Euro- European free improv. You didn't even know, know about that stuff. No. No. Oh, well, I'd seen, I had a little bit of exposure and had a little idea, but, you know, like I went there and I bought an AMM record. And oh, wow. I said, what's this? You know, and I'm 18. Yeah. And, and they were like, it's the weirdest it's like, shit you can ever hear. And it's like, I don't know, whatever they said, you know, I bought the CD and my head exploded, you know. You, my, you, my head exploded at the nothingness of it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, this is, this is music. This sounds like almost nothing, but this is music. That's, you know, it was, it was the smallest sound for the biggest. Mm-hmm. explosion of did concept, did, did you, you know? appreciate it uh immediately that one i got yeah. yeah there were some other ones maybe that i didn't but do you remember i i have very vivid very clear memories of the couple of record stores that i grew up in um moments where like i was buying something or asking about something and the guy behind the counter i was like look don't listen to that listen to this mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. literally turned me on to like oh what naked city what's this mm-hmm. you know yeah do you have memories like that but they, they, obviously the AMM well they are they were definitely opinionated yeah and they would say they would definitely tell me not to buy things in the store and really you know buy something else I mean not not don't buy anything just yeah yeah, yeah. you know I don't buy, buy that no they would say if this is something for you know once you're already into this one then you, then you buy that one you yeah know, but this is this is what you start with you know it was definitely teaching the kids you know? it's definitely I'm I'm not gonna have this conversation right now um 
uh, about how things used to be better, but like honestly, record store culture is the best. Mm-hmm. It's really the best. And there was a long period of my life here in New York, and when before I lived in New York, this was also I would I would go out and walk the streets every day, mm-hmm. and I would stop in at all the record stores, talk to the guys. We were there at the same time. Yeah. You and I, <laughs> we yeah. didn't know each other. We were yeah. in the same store yeah, yeah, at yeah. the same time. The thing that actually makes me the saddest about it is I never really see anybody talking about this, but you would buy things because it seemed interesting sometimes. If you were in um, a bigger store. Right. You know. Tim's or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes you weren't asking questions. You'd see something, you don't know what it is, something about it seems intriguing, you buy it, right? You take it home, and you listen to it, and you're like, I don't, I don't really, this is not, yeah. I don't really like this, you know, but it was an investment. You paid money for that thing, uh-huh. right? And so it sits around on your shelf and you keep pulling it down from time to time and you keep listening to it, you know, and then one day it clicks. Yeah, all my favorite music, that was my experience. And if you're a kid now and you're finding things on Spotify, you know, and you're clicking through and you're listening to 15 seconds of something and making a decision about whether or not you're going to keep well, listening yeah, to it, yeah. you know? You have no incentive to keep listening to it because it doesn't cost you anything, you know? But I had all these records that sat on the shelf, you know? And some of them turned out to be majorly important, you know, a year, five years, yeah. 10 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like really unusual music, you know? And I, I always think specifically about Derek Bailey, um, Morton Feldman. Oh, Feldman was another big Twisted Village one for me. Yeah, but like these were, you know, people told me this stuff was important. I got one or two things, did not understand it at all. I was like, mm-hmm. I really don't get what these people are hearing. And it's kind of like, you, just as you described, checking back in with it because like, you know, Craig said this was deep. I got to mm-hmm. check it out again, you know? And it's my favorite music of all time. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know? And that's that's lost today unless you're a really weird kid. You love to listen. <laughs> and yeah. You're, and who chooses to go back into things you think you don't like. Yeah. You know? But if it's there in front of you, you know. I, I I have to f- believe that like people still know if if so, if it's if if people are able to have like some sense of context and awareness of I know that Albert Eiler's deep. I checked it out. I didn't really it didn't click with me, but I'm going to keep checking it mm-hmm. out. You know, there has mm-hmm. to be people that still like that. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, that's not dead. I'm sure it's not dead, but it's just different when it's not staring you in the face because it's on your shelf. What was that instrument I saw? So I saw your trio with Brian Chase and James Ilgenfritz. Mm-hmm. Um, it must be almost two years ago already mm-hmm. uh, when Brian was doing his, his week at the Stone. Yeah. Oh, we're back there, by the way, in, in June. Oh, really? Yeah. James's week. Right. <laughs> but it's yeah, at the New Stone. <laughs> at the New Stone, yeah. You were playing this gigantic like recorder. Yeah. A bass recorder? Contrabass recorder. Contrabass yeah, recorder. Yeah, yeah. And it sounded amazing, but it was like super quiet. It's really quiet. It, uh, it, amplifies and mics really well yeah. unlike every other woodwind. I can't believe we got them this far in the conversation without me talking about weird instruments well let's talk about it because that's amazing because <laughs> that's my whole life right it's now, weird instruments know? yeah baroque flutes yeah baroque flute <laughs> so wait where did contrabass you... recorder <laughs> so wait what was the <laughs> what, when, what do you remember the moment we said oh this is the next path yeah you know what it goes like in the deeper history of me it goes back to what we were talking about earlier growing up as a saxophone player uh-huh. you know and it and actually going back to the thing you're saying about Coltrane, you know, flute. He played and flute. and yeah, I started playing flute back then, and I mm. loved that. But I I only picked that up again, you know, much later on. But just recognizing that that kind of jazz was this linear path, you know, and you can't redo somebody else's 
path. And it was so hard for me to play tenor saxophone and not sound sure. like Coltrane. I can pat myself on the back saying that I sounded like Coltrane. Now, I don't know. Right, right, not, right, right. Not, not really, but... Still hang out in the Boston area? I go up every once in a while. I'm not connected. It's a very unusual place. Uh, I'm not connected with any of the music scene there so much now. Right. Is but, it? But it's always been weird there. Um, like, I don't know. When I was there, I kind of did my own thing. So right. I, I, I actually was never connected with it. I always heard stories about the, you know, the Berkeley kids at the jam session at such and such a place, but I had nothing to do with that. You know, yeah. kind of like entered the world of outside music when I got to New York. Sure. And you, so wait, what year did you come here? Two thousand three. Okay. Yeah. Right after Harvard. Mm-hmm. And where did you, you came to Brooklyn? Uh, I lived in lived in the city for a couple of years. And then yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah. Wait, you used to live in East Village, right? Lived on Mott Street. Mott Street. I was just there yesterday. Mm-hmm. Where on Mott? Um, just below Houston, like Insanity. Yeah. Yeah. By the original Knitting Factory. Right. 47 East Houston Street, which is now my friend's restaurant. It is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never went there. I mean, I went a million and a half times to, to, tonic. to, to Leonard Street. and tonic. Yeah, Leonard yeah, Street yeah. was a drag, though, man. Not for me. I mean, for me, I was like, you know, as a kid coming from Boston, worshiping yeah. downtown music. <clears throat> it was like, it's the holy grail of places. And, well, that's know. what I thought initially. And then I was like, oh, there's this place, Tonic, on Norfolk Street. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, real yeah. thing, you yeah. know. I remember the last time I ever went to a show at the Knitting Factory on, uh, on Leonard, I, I, every time I went, I liked it less and less. I felt like they cared <laughs> less and less about music. I was walking up, I was, my friend's band was playing, and as I was approaching the door, I see the door fly open, and this bouncer just punched this kid in the face, just really, like, sock him in the face. And this guy, the bouncer was like 200 and some odd pounds. <laughs> the kid was like, you know, a, a, a runt. He was like, you know, 120 pounds, and he fucking bloodied his nose. I helped the kid up. I was like, what's going on? What the hell was that? And he snuck a wristband to get a beer. Uh-huh. And that's what, and that's how they treated it. Uh-huh. And that's what the knitting factory had become to me. Hey, welcome to New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you'd hang out at Tonic. Yeah, all the time. It's the best. I saw everything there. It was like what what going to Twisted Village and buying records was. Yeah. You know, when I was one age, a couple of years later, that was like just going to Tonic and just seeing everything. Now know? that Tonic's been gone for a while, and I have some hindsight, I st- I still think of every once in a while. Like I, I remember seeing Dave Burrell there, mm-hmm. and I'm like, wait, I saw a fucking legend. At this crazy bar, I saw Sonny Murray there. Mm-hmm. I saw like serious titans of music mm-hmm. in this yep. tiny little. I saw you know Brotsman there. I saw all these yep. people. Yeah, I saw Cecil Taylor there. Yeah. Cecil Taylor with Tony Oxley. A tonic. Mm-hmm. Amazing, right? Yeah. See, yeah, a tonic. It's fucking crazy. It never quite. Everything was supposed to come up and take the place of that you know never did but it, it was so centralized it was there every night something was there you know i mean now there's multiple sets a night great stuff happens in different places but nothing has quite gotten that vibe yeah and people talk about it all the time but it's it's worth mentioning that the hang it allowed a hang mm-hmm. like, well, number one all these crazy things were pushed up right against each other so you'd mm-hmm. have an eight o'clock set and a ten o'clock set and then sometimes a midnight set mm-hmm. and then you have the thing going on in the basement like the the techno parties oh, or whatever. I always hated that. Me too. Because the bass thumped up through the floor. Yes. And I'm there trying to see some quiet acoustic set. Right. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> but the fact that, well, okay, I'll say two things. Number one, I never understood why the bar was in the same space as mm-hmm. the performance. It should be on the outside. That's the thing that drives me nuts about a lot of places that exist now that I will but not mention. With Tonic, I know what you're talking about. Tonic specifically, um, there were nights where like, 
you'd be lined up in the like entrance of the building waiting to be admitted into mm-hmm. the space and like you could have bought beer while it's like they would have made more money mm-hmm. and then number two you'd have to listen like the sound of ice being shaken mm-hmm. you know when you're yeah. trying to hear the yeah but I, yeah tonic i really wish something would a lot of places try to do it that open mm-hmm. they, they uh, you hear people say well, we want to be like what tonic was mm-hmm. it doesn't work out yeah where do you like playing the golden right age yeah um I don't know. I play kind of everywhere. Yeah, I don't where, have I don't have a spot. Where do you have, enjoy like, nice playing body. though? If you say, "Oh, I got to get at that place," you know, like, I'll be able to do something. Uh, I don't have an answer. Yeah, I have to think about it. I'm playing coming up soon to this new place, Wonders in Nature. I played you know there. That? You did. Yeah, and uh, I like the fact they're going for the, the old Zebulon vibe. I'm going to be at at the new Zebulon. In L.A.? In L.A. Who are you playing with there? Uh, with Glasser, with the electronic. The, the, the thing that's made in Ableton. Yeah. When? Uh, at the end of June. I've, I've heard it's nice. Everybody says it's great. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think, I, from what I understand, it's a much more professional version of Zebulon mm-hmm. than when it was in Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, ev- everything is more professional today than it was at that time, right? Isn't, Zebulon this is like- in Brooklyn was my favorite venue of all time yeah. in New York. Yeah. It yeah, was, was the best. Mm-hmm. I never had a, I mean, I had some mm-hmm. bad shows there. I, you yeah. know, I had some pretty humiliating experiences there. Uh, <laughs> but I never had a bad time there. Yeah. It's always the best. You know what? The thing about having uh, movies projected that you have no control over. Yeah. Over you makes everything interesting and dramatic and gives a chance for people who aren't necessarily from your scene or your vibe to have an experience and, oh, and enjoy, yeah. you know, be open to hearing things, you know? <sighs> I have some great photos of me with the the. Have you seen me play the portative organ? The the mini, oh the thing the, you play the, with seven tears? Yeah yeah yeah, the, yeah 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 the the miniature pipe organ. Yeah, I have this great photo of me. And it's like I don't remember. I have no idea what movie it was. It was a silent, I think. And there's all these different things projected onto me. There was one that's with a horse, and then there's one that has like three naked women. So good projected onto me while I'm playing the Renaissance organ. I saw Seven Tears at Zebulon. We split uh-huh. a bill. I think I was playing with Tartar Lamb, which is a band I had with Toby. Right. Those were the first Seven Tears shows, by the way. We played there. We did like a residency to sort of start the band. I think. Yeah. Fuck, man. That was a good place. Mm-hmm. Right, and so what record? You said you have records coming up. You have a duo record with Mary Halverson. Yeah, I can't believe I've, I've gone this long. Well, with that. So with, I, with, I, without, I disclaimered without it. That this is just going to be an all-over-the-place conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's two things I'm really excited about that are coming out this year. But part of this, for me, is a deliberate attempt to rehabilitate my public image. Yes. Uh, I'm half-joking. But a lot of the things, a lot of the credits, I played on a lot of records. There is not a lot of the um, of my main of the main point uh-huh. out there in the world. So I have these two records that are uh, two sort of interesting flip sides of um, new creative music played on these early instruments um, with their own kind of quirks and their own interesting reasons for playing them. Right. Um, and the music is really different. And so the one there's a duo with Mary. Mary and I have been friends since we were like. 20 right Mm -hmm. and we have played together only very occasionally throughout that time and a bunch of years ago we made this recording of a duo um and it's really cool mary plays only guitars that i brought she brought my she played my stuff and i don't think she's ever played you know she has her 
her main guitar, not two guitars that she plays everywhere. Yeah, you know, and has her sound on it. So she's Wait, playing. Is she other playing these through pedals, like her normal? No, this is, these are flat top instruments and all acoustic. Oh my god, no pedals and weird stuff that I found along the way, like a harp guitar. You know what that is? It has like a like a big second arm that comes up and yeah. it has bass strings on it. Yeah, it has five or six bass strings, and then all these little tiny treble strings, almost like sympathetic strings on a sitar or something. Uh-huh. It has 18 strings. And she just took to it. It was just like, you know... Just making music just, immediately, yeah, yeah, right yeah, out yeah. the gate. Just, just a tool and just, you know... Purely improvised the whole record. It was one of those things where, I, like I was saying earlier, where it was totally improvised, but the act of choosing the material after the recording and then honing it down with edits yeah sequencing um, it sequencing yeah. it you know there's actually a lot of editing i don't know how much i should admit this mm-hmm. but you know the whole point is that you don't hear it as edits but yeah you're making a record know, um, but the, they turn into compositions did um where did you record it that was at a little place called <laughs> studio drew tube you know drew drew andriotti uh, Drew had a home studio uh-huh. uh, set up. He's he's not in the city anymore. Right. He's upstate. Uh, but he had, for a little while, had this home studio set up, and we went over there and made a record over there. Okay. Um, and my friend, Elisha, who I Your do, partner who, who I do the record label, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he engineered it. He's a great engineer. Yeah. So he came down and and recorded it okay. for us. I kind of mixed it. Um, and that's going to come out on New Amsterdam. Oh, that's coming out in New Amsterdam yeah, in yeah, September. Yeah, September. Yeah, September seven. Uh huh. And that's um, in, in, interesting in, in the Venn diagram of people and scenes, and you know, I, I really it's g- going to be an interesting release, I think, to reach their audience. Mm-hmm. I think the record will have a lot of interest. Um, just kind of being heard in a in a fresh light. In yeah. That way through them that's exciting uh, yeah so i'm really they're they're awesome and they really dig the record yeah and it's just everything's going into production right now the masters are the, the la- vinyl vinyl lacquers are being cut um like tomorrow or something are you gonna be able to go to where for, they're being cut yeah they're in chicago okay yeah yeah bob weston in chicago so okay yeah, yeah and then what's what's the other record and the other one is this trio um it has a real mouthful of a name uh-huh because we just used their names. People kept saying, don't you want to have a band name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with the last name Lee. The It's Norbert Rodenkirchen. Oh, God, okay. Me, Robbie Lee, and James Ilkenfritz. Okay, yeah, I, this is the record I listened to. Right, right, yeah. It's insane. Yeah, so so the the, the name on it is Rodenkirchen Lee Ilkenfritz. No band name. The album is called Opalescence. It could be one of those things you see a lot with some jazz things where the, the name of the first album becomes the band name. Right. It could be Opalescence Trio. I kind of like that. That's a, that sounds good. Yeah. Maybe it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too late to add it now. <laughs> Actually, it's probably not too late, but I can't I, I've that. done that a couple times now. Yeah. The first record is under the name, and yeah. then the second record is the band with the name of the first record. Yeah. But no, I, I, I like it under... I mean, part of this thing is I want you to find me if you look for me. Yeah. Also, because I have a somewhat generic sounding name, and there's a lot of other people... With uh-huh. my name, including many other musicians, it turns out. I, 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 own, I, I own, learned that, actually. I own the domain. Uh, I'm RobbieLee.com. Uh-huh. I have for a long time. One time somebody stole it, and I had to buy it back. For how much? Uh, it was a couple thousand dollars. <gasps> and Yeah, but you know what? Yeah, but I was like, I, it would have been so much worse to not have it. You know, it was some, I don't even, I have no idea how it happened, but it happened. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's one person who's a more famous Robbie Lee, who is an actress in... Uh, 70s B movies, mm-hmm. and she's around, 
and it gives me I get a weird smirk thinking about the fact that she knows about me. Do you ever talk to her? I, I'm I'm that <laughs> jerk that has what's supposed to be her website. You know, yeah. I think she's robbie-lee.com. Really? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then there's some. There's like a New York. There's a New York. Some young kid who's a up and coming jazz saxophonist in New York City named Robbie Lee. Tell so me, why does he just? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it used to be Robert Lee. Sorry, or, I'm sorry. And I also imagine, and there's another guy who's a singer songwriter. Uh-huh, that's uh, when I was. So I went into I, Apple guy. Music to look for some of your music. I, yeah. I was like, oh god, yeah, you know? yeah. And I like to imagine them, you know, trying to find their own music online, and instead they come across me and they listen to my music, and they were like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy <laughs> that's kind of funny I, you know you always think about like like my friend chris hoffman who's a guy i play with a lot and there's another christopher hoffman making music out there and when i when i find it I'm like oh this fucking shit you know but i'm sure that guy if he yeah i never even yeah. thought about that he would hear and go oh my god this is yeah. garbage yeah 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 right so that so, record's coming out on telegraph harp. so that's telegraph harp in june and it's a really cool record um so let me tell you about it yeah uh norbert norbert rodenkirchen is one of the world's few specialists in medieval flute he lives here? He lives in Cologne. Uh-huh. So we don't get to play very often. Yeah. We play here when he gets brought here. So he plays in an ensemble called Sequentia. And Sequentia is, uh, they were really famous for the Hildegard von Bingen CD that introduced that music to a really big audience in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, you know, they have a big booking agent, gets sent around on world tours, plays, you know, in every country playing medieval music. And then in the middle gets to do some special, small, cool, experimental music shows, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's a great, great improviser. Um, and, yeah, really just plays this medieval flute, which is a very, very cool instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and James, Ilgen Fritz, you know James. Mm-hmm. James is the master of the arco, arco harmonics, altered tuning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flutes are all, uh, it's all about heavy-duty tuning Music, but not not tuning theory, not like some Lamont Young, yeah. like the mathematics of it. But once you've just experienced various forms of altered tuning, then going and improvising sort of freely, just with a whole set of possibilities about microtonality. Oh, man. I could listen to that stuff all day. Awesome. It's so good. Uh, and the flutes. So I also play Baroque flute. Uh-huh. Um, and the contrabass recorder that you're talking about. Yeah. Some things like that. I play some... Sopranino saxophone on the record and a Renaissance clarinet called a Shalomo. Yeah, you play, I didn't realize you had a Shalomo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, how is it? Uh, the one that I have is possible. No, no. The one that I have is sort of modernized. It would it would be frowned upon by early music people uh, right. because you play it with a modern mouthpiece and a regular reed with a ligature, like the the real Renaissance version. String. Yeah, you, t- you have to tie on the reed. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't I can't handle that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's great sound and it's it's a little tiny thing. But really sweet sounding. It's sort of what everybody wishes an E flat clarinet sounded like. I think I'm going to be hitting. It's going to be your new thing. I think I'm going to be on eBay today. It's going to be your new thing, totally. Well, I think Um, we did it, man. I think this was good. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right. Are we over time? No, we're perfect. (laughs) This is good. I I think we covered good ground. All right. Well, then let me wait. Let me just reiterate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two records. Really cool. (laughs) (laughs) That was not how I meant to put it. But uh, this really um, important focus for me on on using early instruments, yeah, make, make new music. Um, the, this sort of if the the trio is sort of this ethereal, esoteric, 
um, floating cloud music in real reverb, by the way. Yeah, because you did it at, what, like, Issue Project at, Room? At Issue Project Room, yeah. yeah, during the day, like a like a recording session. Yeah. Um, and the record with Mary, I kind of have been describing as some mutant chamber folk. Or yeah. Something. I have no idea what it you is. You sent it to me today. I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited about it. I, 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 I mean this as a compliment. Like, I'm looking forward to hearing Mary outside of her comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, totally. Oh, she plays banjo on one song. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I I, I really look forward to hearing her outside mm-hmm. her comfort zone. Um, it, there there's no thrill of disaster because she's just awesome, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but she picks up things that she instruments she hasn't played before and just you know she still sounds like herself a hundred percent. You know, so because she's a master, characteristic, so distinctive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's we all as improvisers, you know, that's that's the goal. That's kind of the goal. She's got that down. Yeah. Yeah. If I were a uh, more professional plugger, I would have talked about this earlier. Was that of oh, the records? Of the records, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. no. This was this. This, yeah. this is good. This yeah. is good. So you know, for for your for your hardcore fans, <laughs> that's awesome. I love the podcast. is great. Thanks, man. It's really interesting, and I, I wish there was more. I wish people wanted to go deep about music all over the place and talk about you know all the all the little I, all the little inner details. I wish that too, and you know, I'm just gonna go out and say this right now <laughs> i wish that people because there are people who aren't necessarily musicians but who love music and want to somehow contribute to it in some ways mm-hmm. you know what would be cool if someone would take on the task of doing a, a series like a once a month film project of a feature on a musician mm-hmm. in the improvising scene yeah with a good you know like an hd camera quality editing it could be 10 minutes long it could be mm-hmm. 12 minutes long mm-hmm. that would be sick so if you're out there if you, i mean it man like i i i don't know i know and like people aren't doing that can we do a psa right now yeah I, someone should do that we are seeking <laughs> I, I just like any opportunity to do my radio voice do it again yeah we're seeking a young filmmaker with experience and enthusiasm to do a feature on an improvising or otherwise creative musician once a month what else that's that's about it. That's the thing. Yeah, it should have okay. an artistic bent to it. It should okay. it should be, it should be. Uh, uh, all right, I'm gonna talk some shit about someone, so I'm gonna turn the mic off. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good ending. All right, thanks for having me. All right, that was Robbie Lee. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I did. Um, he's a good guy, Robbie, and I'm really excited for him. Uh, he's he's got a lot of stuff coming out that I think is pretty spectacular focused good work be on the lookout for that stuff june 22nd his trio record september his duo record with mary halverson on uh, new amsterdam go to robbielee.com check him out check out his whole oeuvre there's a lot of stuff there and check out telegraph harp they're putting out quality stuff top to bottom the music's great the packaging the the whole thing is put together and that's it. Uh, so as I promised at the top of the show, I'm going to play a track from my new record. Uh, the record's called Decay of the Angel. Um, and just a little background on the record. I started making this piece called Decay of the Angel uh, like two years ago. It was a long-form piece that, that was qu- kind of uh, quiet in comparison to most of the stuff that I do. And my original idea was to make it be one piece 
um, for the entire record, one piece called Decay of the Angel. And I probably recorded it, I'm not joking, um, nine to ten times. And I was just, it wasn't quite right each step of the way. I did versions of it uh, at my quote-unquote home studio. I did a version of it in a professional recording studio. I did a version of it in a cabin upstate, and it just it wasn't there. The final record does have uh, an iteration of Decay of the Angel. It's about 25 minutes long, uh, but the record is a collection of pieces. There's a couple of solo pieces, uh, just acoustic clarinet. There's a piece, um, two pieces with percussion that I'm playing. The piece that I'm going to play for you now is clarinet with pedals. And as I said at the, to- uh, at the top of the show, excuse me, the clarinet that you hear, that's, that's happening live. Um, really this record is, is much more live than anything I've done. Um, and I'm super proud of it. This is one of the more sort of chaotic, active pieces on the record. That's kind of, kind of sounds like the cut up pieces that I did on my first solo record called in memory of the labyrinth system. And I hope you dig it. And if you do dig it, go to the Kickstarter and, uh, secure a copy in advance. There's a couple days left and, um, anyway. Here's the piece. I hope you dig it. It's called With 10,000 Shields and Spears. Thank <laughs> you. 